1: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Julie A. Turnock, Associate Professor of Media and Cinema Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and author of the book, The Empire of Effects, Industrial Light and Magic and the Rendering of Realism. The book was published in 2022, by the University of Texas Press. Formed in 1975, prior to the release of Star Wars, ILM created a special visual effects unit that would eventually become the standard for films. While there are many effects companies in existence, they tend to follow the concept and methods from ILM. Julie and I discussed the history of the company, as well as why it was able to become so important. We also talk about how it was taken over by Disney and what this meant to its activities. We also touch on the issues related to the visual effects industry as a labor unit. Welcome, Julie Turnock. Hi, Julie, how are you?
0: Hi, thank you very much for inviting me.
1: No problem, we're talking about your new book, it's called The Empire of Effects, Industrial Light and Magic and the Rendering of Realism. I think I've lost track on the number of people I've talked to who either uh, related to Star Wars or in this case, or George Lucas, which is more in your case, the first interview I ever did was about um, Disney's takeover of of Lucasfilm. And um, so a lot of this information, the background I think is pretty well known to me and others, So, uh, as we talk about your book, though, that's we will talk about that aspect of it—the Disneyfying. I guess that's a that's a word that's that's used, Disneyfying of uh, a lot of the Lucasfilm material. So, um, hopefully, uh, we'll get a good review of the book. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about your background in looking through your? uh, some of the material you've written in the past, this is this concept of special eff- well, excuse me, visual effects. I try to always remind myself that visual effects and special effects, at least in film, uh, film terms, is actually two different things, but people tend to put them together as the same, but you've been working on visual effects as a, as a subject in, for a good portion of your career.
0: Uh, indeed. And and as far as terminology goes, you're right that um, it, when you look at credits, uh, if you sit through the credits at the end of a movie, you'll see special effects. And those are usually uh, physical effects. So mm-hmm. things like uh, what used to be gunshot squibs or... Um, uh things like that that things that happen on the set whereas visual effects uh in the credits are usually things that happen in post-production uh, in your cgi and, and such uh, however when we talk about it historically um the term was special effects until really the really until really the 80s or the 90s even uh even in the credits right and so um i tend to use the term uh, it's a little it's a little um, cumbersome, but special visual effects because I think the special part is important. Um, even if it's not industrially correct. I think that it is um, better to emphasize that it's not the material that's on the screen, necessarily that's special. It's the labor that goes into making the effects that is special. Uh, and it's it's something that uh, shouldn't be, Shouldn't be lumped in with a bunch of other things. It should be uh, the the workers. You know, as I as I talk about in my book, the uh, effects artists are um, having a lot of issues with labor issues and uh, unionization issues. And so um, I like to I like to use the term special visual effects in order to um, acknowledge that uh that the work is is still special even though we're so used to cgi and we're so used to every movie having uh thousands and thousands of visual effects uh it still takes people uh and those people's labor is important and special
1: right and in fact i'm sorry
0: oh oh, just to go but um, yes i've been working on this since my uh, since before my dissertation, I actually did my MA uh, on on early cinema uh, trick effects um, in the circa 1900, basically. And then when I went to graduate, uh, when I went to my PhD program, uh, I started working on the 70s uh, special effects. That was the subject of my first book, Plastic Reality. And so this is my second book on the topic. And they are, um, the subject of the books are, are somewhat related to each other in terms of their technological uh, aesthetic histories um, but in different time periods and with uh, different different focus
1: right because by the in the 70s we were still we, we don't start seeing true computer usage uh, as a major focus at least for many years after the original i mean the 70s which is the time period we're starting with you know when lucasfilm was first formed or excuse me and lucasfilm and industrial light of magic were formed and um obviously the first major work that ilm did that people would know about obviously is star wars and the first star wars and then of course the remaining ones as well but that was a different time as far as special effects and you know it's, it was more physical and less computer um, and so, of course, it was more of a, of the special effects that we think of in some of it. Because I know Lucasfilm, when Star Wars, when they finally decided to start doing, you know, when home video started up in the 80s in detail, it took a while for Star Wars to even come out on home video. They finally started releasing documentaries and stuff about the making of the film. And we saw a lot of these effects that they were doing, and they were all very you know, cumbersome and uh, a lot of camera work, but it was still film. Um, there wasn't yeah. the computer usage that we have now.
0: But even then in the 70s, um, not just Star Wars, but the, the, the special effects movies that uh, Star Wars then um, encouraged uh, mm-hmm. because it was so successful, uh, so many critics and scholars and commentators didn't like the even what we think of now as the more kind of um uh, uh analog effects because they they thought that that was uh somehow uh less less real it was getting cinema away from the kind of realism of the 60s and the 70s and turning cinema into something that was more uh, akin to animation and these days i don't think we mind that so much but in the in the uh, in the 70s and into the 80s uh, critics didn't like the idea that um, that there are so many tricks in right. the cinema, and then and they considered them tricks. And instead of you know pointing a camera at something, editing, and um, uh, having a kind of particular style of realism. And in fact, in my book, um, I talk about the, the 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 style of realism that came out of Star Wars, that um, that that ILM, which was. Formed in order to make the effects in Star Wars um, That they that the The aesthetic effect that they were going for was exactly those 60s and 70s movies. They wanted the look of kind of uh, What we call like um, uh, Verite or um, the look of um, The Unchained camera. Uh, They wanted the effects to look as if the you know the '70s cinematographers that they admired, your Nestor, Nestor Almendros and um, uh, um, um, uh, Conrad Hall, and people like that, Owen Reisman, uh They wanted the they wanted the effects to look as if uh, those naturalistic '70s style cinematographers had made these had made the effects. Um, at the time, people didn't really recognize it because it just looked like it looked like realism. It looked like what we think of, what they thought of as, as kind of realist cinema style, but it was a really striking uh, aesthetic. Um, and so that was one of the reasons that Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back were so striking to people is because they didn't just look like realistic special effects. They look like the realistic movies of the previous um, few years of this, uh, that were um, that in which the effects kind of mimicked that look. And so you know we think of we think of effects as being related to kind of what the eye sees in real life, uh, but one of my big arguments is that that's really only the base starting point, point. and there's a lot of manipulation, there's a lot of stylization that goes into making the effects look real, and I think that it's um, interesting and strange that this style uh, that was born of the '70s. Is still uh, the style of effects realism that uh, that the effects industry, led by ILM, is kind of required to um, adhere to, and you know I have an, a whole argument about that <laughs> in the book. So,
1: yeah, and in fact, you you start right from the beginning comparing what we think of nowadays as visual, the visual effects and from that period, the idea of trying them to make them realistic as opposed to animation where you know from the beginning that animation is not real. Um, right. If something's animated, it's not real. But I guess my thought process always is, well, we've had visual effects around or special effects for long periods of time. There are plenty of movies that were that used them. It's just it wasn't obvious. It wasn't the kind of thing where you could look at, an the average person or even a critic might be watching a film and not know what took in to, in order to present that. I mean, the idea of mats and paintings and other kinds of tricks, so to speak, have been around for a long, long time. It's just uh, Star Wars um, tried to do it, in, as you point out, in a different way, which was to make it seem like they were normal, they were expected You know, that world was a true world, a real world, as opposed to obviously uh, fake and and fantasy.
0: Um, Yeah. And the idea that also I I was watching um, recently Casablanca was on um, TCM and I I was watching the opening, um, the opening sequence of Casablanca. And that's a movie that no one thinks of as an effects movie. Uh, but the but there are actually a lot of effect shots in Casablanca and the first few minutes probably are as intensely uh effects heavy as the first few minutes of Star wars um and it's 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 interesting that we just kind of don't think of movies of previous eras whether or not um whether or not the effects are obvious or not um like in rear projection people look at Hitchcock movies and see the rear projection and 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 that's something that people notice, Um, whereas uh, something like a matte painting, like you're talking about, or um, a very kind of skillfully done um, optical printing work. I mean, everyone watches King Kong and they know that King Kong Mm -hmm. can't be a um, a real creature uh and so they must have done some special effects but no one thinks about that when they watch something like casablanca and there's like set extensions and uh um other kinds of uh matte paintings and miniatures and models and and things in there uh and so it is a long history of effects work and for for the longest time in the studio era uh, the goal was to be as unobtrusive as possible with the effects and there also weren't a lot of them Generally speaking in, in a given film like king kong was very exceptional. Uh, it was a very effects heavy movie, but um, And it was very popular and successful But it didn't spawn um, right. a huge number of effects heavy movies and so uh, the the more typical way would be to as as I say to enhance the um, to enhance the location um, and occasionally uh, have uh, like space movies, for example, your Forbidden Planet for, uh, where you're in a an imaginary setting. but um but those were fairly rare on the on the studio slate and very often done by um, independent filmmakers rather than the studios themselves. and they the studios didn't really like, Entrusting their movies to the effects department, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so uh, they didn't really uh, use them all that often. And so, uh, when it comes to Star Wars, um, it it is unusual, even especially for not just even for the era, but especially for the era uh, when uh, cinema had been moving towards uh, more naturalism and um, real locations and the look of of real light, real lighting um more less glamorized um uh, locations things like that uh so it was actually kind of unusual for star wars to come in and uh make these and and kind of bring back these kind of fantasy uh space age locations and you know the you know your buck rogers and your flash gordon as as everyone is aware uh were, were very uh prominent um inspirations to the style of that uh, of that movie but again it's like what if flash Gordon were in 1977 and not uh, uh in, and not in you know in the in the 50s for example and so it's um and I'm not sure where I was going after that okay. <laughs> it's okay
1: well and as as we know it spawned an uncr you know Star Wars begat Star Trek begat Superman begat everything to a large extent that happened since I mean before before Star Wars the biggest blockbuster most people will point to is Jaws which was in 75 but that wasn't that same kind of movie that was an action movie or a it had its suspense and everything but it wasn't thought of as a special effects movie or a visual effects movie even though they did use some I mean they were using um you know, like actual uh, mock-ups of a a shark and stuff. Um, So when was, let me get talk a little bit about your background. Uh, When did special effects or why did you decide that this was something that was of particular interest to you? When did it first hit you as this is something that uh, you wanted to spend a good portion of your time and career uh, (laughs) researching?
0: Um, it's a, it's a funny question because I think I always disappoint people when I answer this question because I think they're expecting me to say oh I really loved Star Wars as a kid and I really wanted to to research it and I, I enjoy those movies and I enjoyed them when I was young um, but I, it wasn't um, I was not obsessed with mm. uh, science fiction or um, uh, fantasy as a kid uh, strangely uh, it was actually through a very uh, academic. Uh, kind of nerdy intellectual um, reason that I started going into special effects. Um, it was I, w- I became really interested in the idea that um, I I'd come from art history uh, before I started doing uh, film studies, and so in my art history background, I was really interested in the idea of the ability to layer the mise en scène. So like. Um, the frame of the film, like the individual frame of the film, being able to manipulate uh, uh, the frame so that you could composite different elements in and create something that in the case of special effects, it's supposed to look like, look as if a camera has recorded it um, directly, profilmically. Um, But I was really interested in the, and, and I'm also interested in the idea of when that happens when it doesn't look like uh, naturalistically as well. So like an experimental film. Uh, Pat O'Neill is someone that I in- interviewed for my uh, first book. And his um, his composite work is really interesting because you can see the edges. Uh, he wants you to know that he's done compositing. Uh, and that's part of the look of the film. And so I'm interested in this idea of artists, whether with mimesis in mind, or you know, um, naturalism in mind, or with uh, um, some other purpose in mind, are using the film frame uh, as a canvas essentially, and um, that's one of the reasons that uh, CGI is so interesting to me because you really can pixel by pixel manipulate uh, manipulate the mise en scene uh, so that uh, it looks exactly the way you want. And again, I think that it's interesting that oftentimes when we're talking about uh, a popular film, blockbuster film, it's always uh, the the kind of realism that people are talking about um, doesn't take into account the amount of stylization that goes into that. So when we're talking about um, so when Christopher Nolan was making uh, the Batman movies that he made um, in in the uh, aughts, people were really Struck by how realistic they look, their their style of realism, uh, and quite a bit of that had to do with creating a certain kind of look that um, went with the you know the the comics origins of Batman, um, while at the same time giving a kind of strikingly photorealistic look. And so it's bringing it's bringing the stylization and the photorealism, uh, and then the photorealism is more. Uh, HAS MORE, IT TAKES MORE THAN JUST MAKING IT LOOK LIKE WHAT WE THINK THE EYE SEES IN REAL LIFE. Um, it, THAT IT ACTUALLY uh, TAKES, that it, IF IT LOOKS TOO SHARP, THEN THAT'S NOT GOOD. Uh, the, THE EFFECTS ARTIST NEEDS TO uh, BLUR THE EDGES A LITTLE BIT OR THINK ABOUT HOW THE CAMERA uh, WOULD BE ACTING IN THIS CIRCUMSTANCE RATHER THAN THINKING ABOUT uh, GETTING EVERYTHING REALLY SHARP, FOR EXAMPLE. Uh, and in fact, sacrificing some of the elements that some of the some of the detail, we might say, in order to uh, give it a more um, to give it a more filmic look uh, or a profilmic look or uh, and then on top of that, there's stylization to make it look a little bit comic booky, for example, in the case of <clears throat> Batman or the Hulk or something like that. And so there's all these different elements that are going into uh, making. This, this kind of notion, this kind of commonly held notion of what's realism and also that that changes over time. And using the Batman example, the, mo- the most recent um, um, Batman movie uh, is a movie that then also was received very positively uh, uh, from the point of view of realism, but it has a completely different style of realism than uh, the, the Christopher Nolan version. Uh, it, is, uh, it is all, all, uh, all dark um with uh, uh, it, it's very soft the the images are very soft compared to nolan's very uh sharp um edges and um and so the idea that both of these movies uh, these sets of movies we'll say these two um these two uh, sets of, of of batman movies um can be received as perfectly realistic but are actually from very different aesthetic you know going for very different aesthetics
1: right um of course i i still remember because i was old i was don't even want to say how old i was when star wars came out because i saw it in the theater and i was an adult so (laughs) uh and one of the things i can think of was The and use your word realism. I mean, it just everything looked like it was real until you know until the outside space. You know, most of the outside space shots obviously we knew wasn't real, but they made a you know Lucas did at that time did what he he tried to put together something that you could that was believable. And in fact, many people were complained a great deal about the middle in the prequels where he went into the digital age. Where it went away from that to an extent where yeah. it's pretty obvious the difference and why when Disney started up the free franchise again to do the sequels, the first movie in particular uh, clearly went back to that older style. Although we obviously know yeah. there was tons of special effects going on and yeah. visual effects, I mean, too, um, to go back to that more realistic style, or at least what it seemed like that was the idea.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's um uh it's interesting to me too that uh they that the um the post Disney takeover, um, they took a little bit of time to figure out what what it was that fans liked about it. Um uh, and, and and especially with like when The Mandalorian came out, um that was something that uh and I have a whole I don't have a whole chapter about Mandalorian, but I do have um, quite a bit about the kind of Disneyfication of uh, the ILM properties of the Lucasfilm properties. And um, part of what I argue there is that there is a, a kind of attempt to, okay, so over the course of ILM's history, they did a lot of different kinds of projects. They're best known for, I think, the the ones that are uh, most photoreal, like your Jurassic parks uh, and and movies like that. Uh, but they weren't they they did all kinds of movies you know death uh, becomes her and um casper and <laughs> all these different styles of effects um but when disney came in they clearly wanted to kind of boil down the essence of the, not just the star wars look which they applied to star to the star wars property but also the ilm look which they could then apply to uh, the Marvel universe uh, especially and uh, lots of other um, uh, uh, franchises and it is uh, and I agree that it is very much going back to the era of, um, I would say specifically the Empire Strikes Back, um, <laughs> where yeah. the um, the Star Wars look was uh was one that was kind of um uh, cobbled together and everyone um who you talk to or you, Hear talk about uh, the original Star Wars was that they were putting it together in the last minute and the effects were uh, kind of going down to the wire uh, to finish. And even people who, even the people who worked on it, besides George Lucas, who has been pretty vocal about how he didn't like um, how the effects looks, looked, and that's why he had the special edition where he uh, changed things digitally or he had um, ILM change things digitally. Um, but even the people who worked on the movie are like, yeah, yeah, it was. We did what we could, and and uh, but we didn't have time to really finish things up. Whereas The Empire Strikes Back was more a kind of um, closer to the kind of ideal look that um, that ILM was going for. And so, um, and so the people who are behind uh, the Star Wars, um, the recent Star Wars uh, movies at Disney, especially John Favreau, the director, John Favreau. Um, have they they have a genuine fondness for that era and they were young um movie fans uh at the time in the in the early 80s when uh these movies were coming out your ETs and um uh Empire Strikes Back and 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 movies like that um but they also cut it also fits in very neatly with disney's handling of intellectual property uh and so they they want to think about like okay what do people want from their star wars and they really and it seems clear uh and i like the look too so i'm i'm no i'm i'm not criticizing um i'm not criticizing the look necessarily uh but it's just it's more that um ilm used to be about innovation and what's new and what we can see that we've never seen before. And uh, the Disneyfication, I think, means that ILM is largely forced to, especially in the Star Wars properties, to think about how to to deliver um, their greatest hits back. Uh, and again, it's, it's, I watch The Mandalorian um, and the Star Wars uh, TV shows, uh, for example, and I think it looks great. <laughs> I mean, I agree that it looks it's a very kind of satisfyingly physical looking world, even though, again, it's uh, uh, very, 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 very much um, uh, generated through special effects of various kinds, uh, digital uh, CGI and also uh, this kind of new version of rear projection. Uh, which we can talk about um, if you want, but um, but it is a, a um, it is a version of the ILM style that is strenuously not forward thinking, uh, and it is uh, so to me. It is somewhat disappointing that it is rare for when ILM gets to do something uh new and fresh um or that the effects industry in general because people because the other effects companies very much follow um ilm um at least aesthetically that it's rare to see a film in which the effects are doing something actually new and surprising uh anymore and um And I think one of the last times that that was the case was uh, maybe uh, the Guillermo del Toro film Pacific Rim, as far as like blockbuster films go. Um, And, you know, where you saw something that was like really strikingly unusual for a blockbuster film. Uh, It's maybe not. Maybe I'm just not being able to think of something more recent, but Mm. that's the one that came to my mind.
1: Well, I'm thinking back when Star Wars first came out and, of course, concept of industrial light and magic. I mean, we saw it on the screen and everything, but what it meant, I think, to the average filmgoer probably was nothing. And then over time, as you point out, and in, of course, as you, as you mentioned in the book, and we can talk a little bit about the, go back to the beginning of the book where you basically present the history of what we know about ILM and what it led to as far as not only just ILM, but other companies And that was the way I remember when a movie came out, especially once ILM started doing work for other films, which I think you said was 1980 was when they first, which of course happened to be when Empire Strikes Back came out. So it was pretty obvious by 1980, they felt they had it down well enough that they could start offering their services to other uh, films.
0: There was some financial considerations as as well, but uh, yes.
1: (laughs) So, ILM it got to a point when you went to see a movie or when you heard about a movie, if you had heard that ILM did the effects, that automatically at the time period made it more um, interesting. You know, it automatically pushed it up in the, you know in a, mm-hmm. especially the people who were the younger people who were watching these movies, the blockbusters who you know it made a big difference to say, oh wow, this is an ILM film, so that's automatically going to be better as far as the effects.
0: Yeah, and that's something that is also um, that I talk about in the book is that ILM was also extremely successful, not just in um, promoting themselves as a brand to to fans, but um, uh, they but ILM was pretty much uh, you you mentioned earlier talking about uh, having seen making of videos and things like that, and um, ILM. Uh, Pretty much if you have seen a, a movie making a video, especially before, uh, we'll say the 90s, uh, I will be, it's almost certainly an ILM produced <laughs> a video. And so um, through the promotional videos they make themselves, so for example, they're, they're like before uh, Return of the Jedi came out, there would be TV specials like primetime TV specials um, I think there was one that I saw that was narrated by Darth Vader, which seemed which was very strange. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, or no, C-3PO. I saw one with C-3PO. Uh, and that that's um, so th- so that in prime time you could see like, oh, here's how they're doing the effects for this movie. Um, and Time magazine would run a story about, oh, the magicians of ILM. Uh, and then you would see. Um, uh newspaper um ap wire stories about uh, ilm as well and so they were always very successful in getting themselves getting their brand name out there as um if ilm i mean exactly they they had the effect of what what you just said which is if ilm did the effects well that's more interesting now because that means something to me whereas they were very there were several other companies Apogee. Boss, uh, that you, if you heard they did the, the, the effects, it wouldn't mean anything necessarily because they don't didn't have the same kind of PR, and so one of the things that surprised me when I was uh, researching the book is, um, I initially, uh, and I say this in the introduction, I did I, I initially didn't expect to write the book about ILM, um, that wasn't necessarily what I what I started out thinking, uh, that I was it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a kind of broader based. Um, EXPLORATION OF THE ERA BUT BECAUSE ILM SO DOMINATED THE PR UH AND THE AND THE INDUSTRY uh, ECONOMICALLY AND UH THE AESTHETIC STYLE OF EFFECTS UH THAT I, I CAME TO REALIZE THAT UH I COULDN'T I COULDN'T NOT WRITE A BOOK <laughs> THAT UH WASN'T EXPLORING THE SPECIFIC STYLE OF ILM AND THERE AND AND So I think that, well, and so their PR kind of started off in a kind of usual PR way, like, oh, we need to make the kind of best image for the company uh, like PR does. Um, But what's what has been uh, fascinating to me and and maybe even surprising is the extent to which uh, ILM's version of ILM and ILM's version of uh, the effects industry and effects in general Uh, is so is so generated from ILM (laughs) and so whenever you see as you say a making of video whenever you see um, a coffee table book I've got like I've got three thick coffee table books produced uh, by ILM about ILM and so it is and they repeat the same history over and over again and you might be aware there is a recent um, Disney Plus series uh, called Light and magic, that just that just appeared um, as of as of this summer, as of you know last week practically, and they have their very uh, um, codified narrative of uh, this this triumph went to this triumph went to this triumph. So we started off with Star Wars, uh, and then there's uh, Indiana Jones, um, and then uh, and there's Jurassic Park. Uh, And in fact, weirdly, the light and magic ends with Jurassic Park as if like they haven't done anything since (laughs) Jurassic Park. But Jurassic Park is such a um, calling card for ILM uh, that um, that they always, 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 always emphasize uh, Jurassic Park as this um, um, hallmark. And and they should. It's it's obviously a, um, you know, it it was a movie that uh, actually did change a lot of things in the in the era or in the in the industry Um, but what I found when I was doing research is that if you find any material that uh, isn't produced by the ILM PR machine quite a lot of bit quite a bit is contradicts the ILM story that uh, they've been telling over and over again and one of those the thing that to me is the most um marked (laughs) the thing that surprised me the most is how much during the 80s and through the 90s uh that ilm's pr and uh, was was exaggerating their cgi capabilities and um what i found was it really wasn't actually until after jurassic park until really the mid 90s and getting ready for the prequels um ilm likes to say they went digital uh, and tra- like in the late 80s basically and it's it's they really didn't turn into a largely digital facility until the late 90s right. uh, in preparation for um the phantom menace and if you read and so the repetition of the pr become has become so so um uh, calcified in in the imagination that they can say things like oh yes um we got rid of our optical printers and we got rid of our model shop and you know then jurassic park came out and you know we that demonstrated that ilm had was an entirely digital facility and it's 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 very much not the case (laughs) Mm -hmm. and also uh the idea that um ilm has they have a lot of innovations to be proud of. They have a lot of inventions to be proud of, uh, but they also tend to see what other companies are inventing and then do a kind of better version of it because they have more money. And so um, so there's a kind of um, uh, motion capture is a really strong example of that, um, even though uh, Weta um, in New Zealand gets a lot of credit for their motion capture. Um, if you watch ILM documentaries, or if you see um, uh, uh, um, the coffee table books, it will imply that they, that, that they invented the motion capture, not uh, anybody else. And so they kind of erase their competitors. Uh, they erase any alternate histories. Uh, and I mean, again, this is what PR does, but the problem is I'm an academic, I'm an historian. <laughs> and so uh, my job is to not take PR as um, as fact, and so it's hard to do research on a multi-billion-dollar company, especially since now that Disney owns them. Um, but there are places that one can <laughs> find uh, alternative um, alternative uh, sources that um, aren't produced uh, strictly for Disney or for Disney or ILM or Lucasfilm PR.
1: Yeah, you talk about that quite a bit right at the beginning, and I that was one of the things I wanted to talk about. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I think this has something to do with, to me, and I don't know one way or the other, I'm only going by my own thought process, Lucas's decision or desire to keep tinkering with the films. The biggest joke I ever had is that we have to watch it now before Lucas changes it again. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean... That's true. I mean, and the the idea that he wants to pretend like the past never happened. Not only did he come up with the new digital versions in the 90s, like mid, you know, as he was getting ready for the 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 prequels, but the old ones disappeared. You could yeah. not see the original Star Wars anymore. You had to watch the special edition. Uh, same way, it's like, and and the thing about it is, and once again, I'm not sure if they're related in any way. I I remember I've been doing, you know, I've read over years the whole idea of the story of Star Wars, where Lucas has one statement about how it all came to be, how he wrote it, quote unquote. And he basically wants everybody to believe that he wrote it the way it turned out. Yeah. And yet, over time, some of the early screenplays and story treatments have been found have been actually you talk about not being able to find out much about industrial light and magic that unless it's there producing it. but we've seen scripts and things that are been proven to be true you know accurate that he was making it up as he goes along I hate to put it that's baldly but I think it's true
0: I think it's true, too. And (laughs) so eventually
1: he would get it sort of straightened out, but it certainly wasn't. He didn't have it planned right at the beginning, as far as I'm concerned. When Star Wars was being made, the first one, I don't think anybody in their minds thought that Darth Vader was going to be Luke's father. I just (laughs) don't don't believe that. And most of the readings and stuff prove that that's not the case either. But it's sort of like the Industrial Light and Magic story has sort of followed the same Uh, guideline of well we're going to tell the story the way we want and it may not be true but it's the story we want it to be.
0: Yeah and that's the job of PR and I get it Um, but again that's it's not my job to parrot the PR uh, and it's very very hard to find sources that aren't uh, even if they're not literally coming from Lucasfilm they are authored by people who work for Lucasfilm (laughs) and so um, uh, in in order to get rights for images, you have to submit your manuscript to Disney, and they have to approve it. Uh, And so uh, I don't need to tell you that that's going to um, uh, uh, discourage um, versions of the story that go off of what they do. And and it's, again, it's, this is what all come, all large companies do and and part of i always feel like i'm um raining on people's parade because people love star wars and they love ilm and they and they and they look to ilm as this kind of beacon of integrity and in a and lucasfilm as well in a in a you know a film a, an entertainment industry that you know one can rarely point to such things and i also want to point out that the artists at ilm historically are the best in the business i mean they they are really um creative uh innovative uh have great ideas have been pushing the medium forward for decades and they've got a lot to brag about uh and so i don't uh i don't begrudge them the bragging uh but they're leaving a lot of the story out and or, um, as I say, erasing the elements that don't show ILM in the best light or um, don't demonstrate. Um, I mean, again, I, I keep saying this. It's PR. Um, and, that's, and that's what PR does. Um, but we as scholars <laughs> yeah. um, shouldn't believe the pr version and um and it's it's very hard to uh, find sources that um that that tell that tell other stories and sometimes it's interviews um and there is actually at the ransom center and at um ut austin there is a a cache of papers uh from a former general manager of ilm um and i got a lot of information from that i talked to people in interviews i read I read other like unpublished interviews as well. And so when uh, people uh, are kind of speaking off the record, they can be more uh, candid. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes also you can, when time has passed, and then someone will say, well, we tried to do this at this time, but it didn't work. Um, and then we eventually figured that out. So then you can kind of retrofit uh, uh, the story from an earlier era as well. And so, as I say, it's it's challenging to do the kind of research on this kind on on a on a company that so strenuously has wants to maintain its image as the kind of heroes of cinema. Uh, and I'm not here to uh, tell you that they're a bunch of jerks who are. Um, actually evil or something that's not that is not my thesis uh it's just that um you know we should we should try to have as accurate of a story uh considering the 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 history of cgi entering the film industry and how that happened uh shouldn't be the purview of one company uh and their pr machine because what? it's an important, it's an important academic, a uh, uh, historical uh, question and issue, uh, and if you just go by the kind of popular histories, uh, it's a very simplified one.
1: I think it's using that as as your you know with with that aspect of your thesis, it's pretty clear now that Disney was the logical place for it to go when Lucas mm-hmm. was selling it because they're mm-hmm. great at doing that too. I mean Disney is i mean they've been doing it for their entire especially as time went on is that they're very their image is very important to them not that most companies aren't but disney's yeah. pretty much i've always joked about this i mean I've, i don't think i've known of any company who is as um careful with their intellectual properties as disney is and yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Uh, um it's clear that uh that was something they always did so for them to to have Star Wars and, and the industrial light and magic for that matter, it's not a surprise that that was the place, so to speak, to go. I wanted to talk, uh, one of the things that you talk about and you mentioned in the introduction and you talk about it through the book and the idea that ILM is considered to be the gold standard and everything is supposed to be everybody who came afterwards followed an ILM blueprint. Yeah. Um, and you talk a lot about what that means, and I know it's a good portion of the book, but I think we can talk about examples of what was considered to be the ILM way, which other companies either are compared against as opposed to being standing on their own. What, when you talk about that, what, what aspects, physical, or you know, visual or whatever aspects, do you feel uh, points to something being the ILM way?
0: Well, it's funny because when one describes it, uh, it sounds just like common sense. Um, this is what effects are supposed to look like because it is very much uh, the the style that ILM has um, uh, 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 you know has been using uh, since since the 70s. And it's also worth pointing out that ILM is the only company currently in business that was that has been in business since the 70s. All the other uh, companies have um risen, risen and fallen uh, according to um according to ilm and uh, uh and so they are they are the longest standing effects company and so it's um with probably the most successful portfolio of films that everyone recognizes so um so that's one of the one of the kind of we'll say logical or commonsensical reasons that ILM has is, is been such a uh, gold standard beacon um, to to other uh, companies. Um, but okay, so part of what I, I already talked about, um, the kind of, um, so the example that I use in the introduction of my book is from um, The Revenant. And the bear attack in the Revenant. And so, um, on one hand, it is um, a kind of, we know that Leonardo DiCaprio was never near any bear. Right. <laughs> and so, that no bear ever came into contact with Leonardo DiCaprio. We know that logically. Uh, but the effects company, which was ILM, uh, needed to convey the sense that, well, that first of all, that, 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 that did happen, but also the sense that there was that you know that there's a bear. Uh, the bear moves in a very kind of logical way um, based on the kind of weight uh, and heft of the of the animal uh, that we see. Um, it's also that that sequence takes place in a kind of um, faux long take. It, it is presented as, as a single take or almost a single take two takes actually. Um, and so we have a, a lot of bear, being in in the frame for long periods of time, and so you know, g- generally when people watch that, they attribute the success of that sequence or not to the how how successful the bear appears. And it is it's the it's the bear's really um, um, well rendered, and, and every all of the all of the aspects of the bear look great. Um, but part of what people don't recognize so much. Uh, is first of all the the, the camera work. Uh, and so it appears as if a a, a nature camera person, oh. <laughs> um, albeit one who is kind of heartless uh, because they're not coming to Leonardo DiCaprio's aid, <laughs> but a, a nature camera person is there uh filming and trying to get the best uh shot that they can given the spontaneity of the of the shot and so it's meant to look spontaneous it's meant to look like a camera person is there um and not like uh if you think about if like they just set up a camera and left it still uh and then had a bear maul Leonardo DiCaprio without moving the camera around, it's not nearly as uh, a dynamic of a sequence. Okay, so that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is the lighting. Um, We tend to think that um, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of bear, when in fact um, the bear is in silhouette a lot of times. The bear is backlit a lot of times, uh, and so we're seeing shape of bear uh, much more so than we're seeing like fully rendered bear. Um, and so you're not seeing like the all the details of all the fur all the time. Um, and so we've got a kind of physical uh, location excuse for that as well uh, because we're in this, this kind of canopied um, forest where the light is kind of filtering down uh, and then I believe if I remember correctly the sun um, the sun is behind the tree so you don't see the sun mm-hmm. but the sun the light source is um, pretty much directly above and so you get the backlighting effect. Uh, and so this kind of um, you are there. Uh, shot on the fly, uh, uh, camera work, which to some degree has some has has a great deal to do with the, uh, we'll say the the cinematographer and the and the and the director, um, but nevertheless it is something that ILM, in their effects sequences returns to over and over again. This, um, if you watch a Transformer movie, for example. Um, on the other end of the scale, <laughs> from the revenant to, to transformers, uh, the camera movements are, are similar. Actually, as far as like the camera person is trying to kind of catch up to the action, as if they're a news camera person mm-hmm. or a um, uh, or a documentary um, a camera person, uh, and there there is a lot of emphasis on lighting effects of various kinds and so lens flares is something i talk about a lot uh especially because um they're a good example of how you know the human eye doesn't see lens flares <laughs> mm-hmm. and so uh maybe if you are um uh, behind a um uh behind a a, a windscreen on a, in a car or something but even then you're they look different Um, A lens flare looks different from any kind of flare that you see through um, glass, for example, by the human eye. And so um, the lens flares are there for a couple of reasons. One is they give the sense once again that there's a human camera person shooting it and the lens flare is kind of proving that the camera was there to create the lens flare. Also. IT creates a kind of distraction to the eye so you're not looking too hard at that bear right. <laughs> um, the bear is uh, uh, um, uh, uh, kind of blown out by the by the light of the lens flare um and it also harkens back to 60s and 70s cinematography as well so it has a lot of different purposes um and so this 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 is kind of the the you know the lighting the camera work um, and then the uh, uh we'll say the naturalism or the zoomorphism of the uh, anthropomorphism and zoomorphism of the of the figures uh kind of combined together uh are very much the kind of formula that you know ilm has a lot has the time and the money to do all of that very carefully uh the other companies not always um and it's not their skills uh, so much as it is uh time and money most of the time um since so rarely a case of bad effects in a movie and it's more a case of cheap or um fast effects <laughs> um uh, the the, the I, I one doesn't like to blame the artists for the productions um uh, uh the production's choices and so this but anyway so this is able to be turned into a kind of formula for others to follow and so this is why i mean people make fun of um J.J. Abrams for his overuse of lens flares. Um, But he's just kind of exaggerating something that everybody does. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just almost don't notice them anymore. If you just have a single kind of subtle lens flare, you don't even, your your brain doesn't even register it. Uh, And so these are all these kind of stylizations um, that kind of, that have historical roots in the 70s, the 60s and the 70s, um, but then also... Uh, and so they're a reference style for the the digital era um but then are also repeated over and over again and in in my book i talk about how it's not just blockbuster effects uh it's also like more art uh art film um uh art style films uh roma is an example i use a lot where the the effects of, the realism effects in roma are very complicated but one of the main elements of roma is that that it is using effects style that is associated with blockbusters and um uh, uh, fantasy blockbusters at that uh in order to cue the viewers towards kind of a contemporary notion of realism and you know it has a lot roma has a lot going on in it um but it is very much in a lot of in, in its conception of realism, bringing in the kind of ILM style of blockbuster realism in order to kind of put over uh, the, the realism effect of being inside the uh, subjectivity of the main character in the film. And um, so that's that's one of the things that I th- thought was so interesting and um, surprising is mm-hmm. how we think of blockbuster effects as this one thing, um, but it is, one can see this aesthetic throughout contemporary filmmaking, um, even when the aesthetic seems to be going for something very different.
1: Yeah, it, that's why I, I, I still find it interesting that during the prequels, Lucas went away from that to a large extent. I mean, no one can watch uh, Revenge of the Sith and believe that <laughs> the two main characters, of uh, um uh, we're actually Skywalker and, and Kenobi were actually on a planet that was full of volcanoes and lava and stuff. It's (laughs) unbelievable. You look at that and it's just so opposite of that concept of realism. And yet
0: I I agree with you. And I, I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about like, why, why? (laughs) And I don't really have a good answer except for complete, um, uh, supposition, which is, I think that it's, for Lucas, he was he wanted a really new look. Right. He wanted he he actually didn't want it to look like uh, the previous films. He 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 was. Everyone has been telling him for decades, uh, and by the mid 90s, this was uh, certainly the case about what a um, trailblazer he was and how he was all about pushing the medium forward. And so for him, I think he thought the digital look looked really new and cool Um, and unfortunately the public largely didn't agree with him (laughs) I sometimes
1: uh, believe that the only reason Jar Jar is in the first film as much as he is is because Lucas decided I have to show I did this even though the first of the three prequels is the one that's the least digital I mean they all are but I mean you get to a point where you see a little bits and pieces of making of's and you see how little there were sets or anything everything was digitally Put together, and and I think it suffers to an extent because it takes away that realism factor that you've talked about.
0: Well, what's funny is that 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 the contemporary Star Wars TV shows are almost exactly the same in terms of how much set is there um, and how much effects are there. Uh, they just are now better at keeping uh, uh, um, right. the style, the previous style, and so it's in a style now that people like. The look of more whereas they didn't like the digital look like if part of it was the technology at the time wasn't able to render uh, with the kind of detail and it's not all about detail but um but that's part of it um but the contemporary um the contemporary productions uh it's like the mandalorian and there's a rock and a little bit of set and everything else is a giant led screen behind them uh right. and there's images on the led screens um and so it could it, feels more like a populated set. Um, but it is as little <laughs> as uh, in the prequels, it's just in a style that people like better now. <laughs> and so And I think uh, that's, that's partly because, really- because
1: as you've pointed out, it's become the norm even in films that as you say that are they're not meant to be special effects or visual effects films. they just use them as, as what, something they, they regularly use. And so now, I I, there's a part of me that wonders is how much of it is because actors have now been in this realm for so much of their work that they're getting better at being able to ape that they're in front of a green screen as opposed to, and I don't know, I'm just grasping at straws at this point, (laughs) but I think it's a matter that as you're pointing out is that this has become the norm for almost every film. I mean, I think you had a statistic in the in the introduction that talked about how much of how many. the average film that isn't necessarily considered to be a blockbuster or, any, or a special effects film still has special effects. They're just not meant to be obvious.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then it's like these days practically, um, like I say, if, if effects look bad, like obvious in the sense of bad being obvious and uh, uh, not in the photorealistic style people expect, it is largely because the production didn't spend enough money or time Mm -hmm. to make it, to make the effects the way they want them to be. Because even very um, low budget stuff, I mean, not very low budget, but um, even like, well, television has a much lower budget than um, uh, feature films still to this day, even though less so than in the the past. I mean, you wouldn't believe what is blue blue and green screen that you have no idea is because you know you you wouldn't expect to look for it there and so um they, all I'm, all I'm trying to say is that there's way 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 more uh effects work in even low budget stuff than that people just don't register as such and like I say when you do register it as such it's probably the production's fault because all the effects go, or there's a occasionally very occasionally, it's a purposeful look, like in *Twin Peaks: The Return*. Um, I don't know if um, uh, the effects company that was behind that is a perfectly mainstream effects company. They can do photoreal effects, but I'm I feel confident that David Lynch wanted the effects to look right. uh, a little wonky because he's David Lynch. <laughs> right. And I mean, so, uh, most of so, his films
1: look a little wonky. It's just a no right. matter how of how wonky he wants his, them to be
0: that's part of that's part of his look but and so if you so so I think a lot of people saw the return and thought it was bad effects but it's but in fact I don't think that's the case but we do see a lot of movies that um, as I say uh, they didn't they cheaped out on the effects because the artists are all skilled enough pretty much um, top tier second tier middle tier and up they can all do that um, do the most basic um, um, uh, green screen compositing um, so that you wouldn't notice it um, and so when you do notice it it's, it's, it's you know somebody didn't pay somebody uh, to do to or give them the time to do it right.
1: And I think it's partly also the fact that for television the needs the requirements for it to work on television even in these days of great ways to present you can watch television on incredibly big and great screens, but it's still different from in a feature film where you have to be more careful to be making it up. Op- you know, you, you've got to make it more, uh, you've got to hide the, <laughs> you got to hide the tricks where on television, it's a little easier to do that because in the end you're, you're going to be able to do it because of the way television is made. Although obviously we know they do it the other ways. Um, I'm, you said something else about the, the one thing and, and I know we've been going an hour already so but I, I, I think personally my one major complaint and I know why they do it but it seems like every major special effects scenes especially in Marvel films and not just Marvel they always have to be in the dark and, and I know why they do it. I mean, it's much easier to, to do a special effects, a heavily laden special effects scenes, visual effects scenes, when when it's dark. You know, when the back, as, as you pointed out with The Revenant, you make sure it's not in direct sunlight and things like that. But it just, to me, it, it stands out to me. Maybe it doesn't to other people, but it certainly stands out to me that the reason why this particular fight is in... The dark is to make it easier on the special to get the special effects the way you want it.
0: Uh, sometimes that is the case. Um, you know, if you think about uh, that's that was one of the changes from the original Star Wars to uh, the the special edition is they made the cantina scene. Uh, I'm going to say I don't have a I don't have an exact amount, but I'm going to say 25 percent darker, <laughs> so that you can't see uh, uh, the costumes and mm. the um, prosthetics so well. So that is um, it is a well um well-worn trick i mean i i think i, I brought up pacific room earlier and that's a movie that has a lot of sequences that take place at night but with really interesting lighting effects and so i think that one can do things with um with with the uh dark um setting and that's something i think that the the batman the 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 Matt Reeves Batman the Robert Pattinson Batman um does really well as well is taking advantage of the kind of uh a field of vision um and what you can see and what you can't see it's like a kind of a horror movie trick but um what's what's outside the frame and what's in the frame um but yeah so it's but it's also in the Marvel movies I think it's interesting that most of the Marvel movies start in the dark (laughs) and then um, and that's part of actually setting the Marvel like so you know that you're in the Marvel universe um, because there's a very specific look to those kind of dark scenes with um, uh, uh, strong shafts of light and points of neon or like uh, fluorescent lights around the mise-en-scene and so and so that's part of yes um, not showing too much because that is that is like a hundred year old effects trick (laughs) is to uh uh, make you think you're seeing more than you're seeing um but i think in the case of the marvel movies that it is part of uh, uh uh um each time starting over in the marvel universe uh with a familiar cue that you're in the marvel universe um and So that's my that 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 is that is my two cents on at least some of uh, the reasoning uh, for some of those effects sequences. I don't know. There was an article recently that was I think in Vulture that was about um, talking to an effects person, talking about how uh, how terrible uh, the working conditions are on for effects people on Marvel movies. And, you know, they are asking for changes like up to the last minute uh, and significant changes. And so these big um, uh, battle sequences, for example, are very often not directed by anybody. Basically, uh, they're, they are um, they are the effects companies kind of have to throw them together, the best they can in the last minute. Uh, and again, not their fault; it's the production's fault. Um, so, yeah, and so that so that um, no no one is directing those action sequences. And I'm sorry to say that it very frequently you can tell (laughs) not not always there are some people who really know what they're doing Um, but and I think
1: that's an important part of what we really haven't talked about in detail and and but I think you do talk about it and you mentioned it earlier on and that is that there are real people behind all these things Mm -hmm. and the the these effects companies use a lot of people all you have to do is sit through end credits and and in marvel movies you're forced to if you want to see all the (laughs) of course now all the all the movies start to do that and have started to do that and the idea that having to sit through them all just so you see if there's any last minute (laughs) added parts but i mean the amount of people it takes to produce these things and as you point out earlier is the work and you just mentioned now the working conditions aspect of it and how that's part of the whole story as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's kind of what my whole first chapter is about is um, uh, the industry and, uh, and a kind of historical view on the industry and why effects given the fact that they are so central to, the movie industry, not just blockbusters, but like the whole the whole entertainment industry, mm-hmm. uh, that you know every company is on the razor's edge of bankruptcy, kind of all the time, uh, because of the the various. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of different reasons, or lots of reasons, but the it kind of boils down to the productions want they know that it costs a lot of money to pay all these artists, and so they make the conditions so that uh, they can spend the least amount as possible and have as much leverage over them. Uh, And then if you are somebody, if you're an effects company who wants to work on a Marvel movie, that's good steady work, you know, Mm. (laughs) Um, then you have to, you have to, uh, you know, you know, they have the leverage over the, over the company in order to uh, uh, continue to work on Marvel films if you don't if you then get blacklisted from Marvel films you're kind of stuck Um, right because
1: that's Disney you're blacklisted from
0: yeah (laughs) yeah pretty much I mean not hundred percent but largely we'll say and yeah so it's 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 a very um, it's a very complicated industry that has a lot to do with um, the kind of similar problems that the video game industry has about contingent labor it's also it's like for a lot of people they're like I like video games, I like Star Wars, I want to work in special effects. That seems fun, right? And then it turns out that they don't have health care, you know. Right. <laughs> and uh uh or living wage or 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 such. So it's like the people uh you know, they're they're a dedicated people get burned out very quickly is the problem. And uh and so there's a lot of churn. Uh there's a lot of uh 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 what's the word runaway production um tax incentives mean that effects companies are housed all over the world they used to largely be in california and now they're kind of all over the place uh mm-hmm. any place you, you know and you could have a, a an effects house with five people that are working on a marvel film or you can have a, one of the really big companies with with thousands of people and so it's a very uh unstable um industry that can only be kind of held together uh, uh through the kind of um threat that the th- the threat that Marvel and Disney aren't going to hire you anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's it's a really r- a complicated thing and and like the also people tend to think that the studios own the effects companies and they don't except for Sony Pictures ImageWorks. Uh they're the only company and then ILM is owned by Disney but It's a kind of complicated relationship it's not a kind of direct um uh in-house uh uh, and that's only been since 2012 so that's not been very long um and so keeping the companies poor right and keeping them um hungry essentially is is what the production companies do to keep them in line and it's
1: yeah it and and it's funny going back to the title of your book and this is probably a good way to sort of bring it all back together. It's called the empire of effects. It's not called, you know, it's not the, it's not the Republic of effects. It's the empire (laughs) of effects, which I think sort of uh, brings that all back together. But I mean, you're right. I mean, the average movie watch at the end, it used to be, it, when in, during the heyday of industrial light and magic, that was the only company that was listed as doing the visual effects. Or nowadays, you've got companies whose only job is to produce the titles for the film. And I mean, it's just you just see the number of companies that are mentioned at the end of a film to know how big the industry really is. And and
0: mm-hmm.
1: so yeah, I, I I totally understand the point you made about that. I mean, yes, we see their names on the screen, all of these folks, but that's a lot of people that you have to you know, that, that are involved that can make for, uh, uh this problem even worse. So yeah. anyway, uh, like I say, we've gone for more than an hour and I still feel like we've only scratched a little bit about the book, but I mean, I think good. That's the idea. You want people to read the book and the way you do that <laughs> is you give them ideas of what's discussed and hopefully, that gives them even more interest in reading it. And I think it's a good overview of industrial light and magic and, and not just that, but also the whole idea of the special effects industry or the visual effects industry as we have it now. I mean, today's visual effects industry is still largely uh, built on uh, on ILM. So I really appreciate your time. I, the book is is very illuminating and I think uh, is useful to get a better sense of the importance of visual effects, but also the background and and things like uh, the labor issues and, and and certain and costs and those kind of things and how it all contributes to the average film. So uh, thank you for your time today. Uh, I've been speaking with Julie Turnock. And I got that right. I didn't even ask ahead of time, but...
0: Yeah, you're exactly right.
1: (laughs) I've had some times where I've always had to ask in advance, but lately I've been interviewing guests whose names were... Anyway, (laughs) we don't need to keep talking about names. The Empire of Effects, Industrial Light and Magic and the Rendering of Realism uh, by Julie Turnock, published in 2022 by the University of Texas Press. And uh, they are putting out some really interesting books on film and film related subjects. So it's great that uh, you and there's a number of other publishers these days who are doing really great with it. But I know UT is, of Texas Press has really been interesting with some of the material they've come out. So great they book work, work. and I hope uh, people are uh, paying attention to it because it's, it's definitely an interesting way of looking at some of these issues. Yes, thanks
0: for having me. And shout out to UT Press. They were uh, a dream to work with. So (laughs) Ben, thank you for having me.
1: Great. Thanks for for your time. And and I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Julie Turnock. Learning more about a company like Industrial Light & Magic can help you better understand how visual effects have largely become so important in the 21st century film. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.